And here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Thrilled you're listening. Of course, my name is Eddie Cohn, host, creator, producer, CEO of the Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Obviously, lots of options out there with podcasts, about five million at last count. So really appreciate that you're here listening today. And you're going to really enjoy this conversation that I had with Elijah Thompson. He's the bass player in two bands, Everest and Father John Misty. He's also a producer, mixer. I found out about Elijah and the band Everest maybe like 10 years ago. They were on KCRW pretty regularly, and I checked them out at a show in Pasadena, and I was just floored. I think I've, I've always been into rock music from Led Zeppelin, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. So I think in this day and age where rock music seems to be not as popular, I'm always intrigued by bands that can just, that just, for lack of a better word, rock through loud guitars, cool melodies, great vocals, great bass. And so I was just, I reached out to Elijah a few weeks ago, and I was just so happy that he agreed to be on the show. And, and if you are new to the show, before, and, and I promise we'll, we'll get to the conversation very soon, but my podcast really, and I've sort of been trying to figure it out a little bit more the last couple of weeks, because it's always changing, but I became intrigued by the consequences of technology, of, of Spotify, of Napster, of Netflix. I mean, what does that mean to our culture? I think we instantly go to this place of convenience, spending less money. But that does have, you know, these services like Spotify and, and Netflix and Amazon Prime, our cell phones. I mean, this does have an effect on our culture. And it does have an effect specifically on creativity, artistry. And I, I deal with this stuff firsthand. And I felt like it's important to talk about. Not that I'm going to have a solution here. I don't know if I can change the landscape of our culture here. But, you know, I'm, I'm putting out a record in the next probably four or five months. And part of me almost, you know, of course I want people to hear it, but gosh, it's, it's like you put all this work into a creative process and then I guess you just have to give it away or you have to think of clever, unique, nuanced ways to sort of figure out a way to release your music so it actually gets heard and seen through all the music out there, all the film that's out there, all the photos and TV shows. And, and on the one hand, technology certainly makes our lives a little bit easier, but are we getting lazier? Are we able to get through all the minutia and find talent that's actually really good? It's confusing. I think Technology and social media have created a world for artists where it's not just as simple as recording and releasing a record and that's that. I, I think you need to be very calculated, or maybe you don't. I, I'm not sure. Obviously, you can tell I don't have the answer, but I am certainly trying to talk to other artists. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a DJ. I obviously have a podcast. I'm a musician. I'm trying to speak to other artists and hear from them about the complexities of artistry, creativity, technology, social media, and how they navigate this very rapidly changing landscape. So Elijah 
is very talented. He's an amazing musician. Obviously, music has been in his blood for years. We have a great talk about the band Everest, what we can expect from them in the near future, how that band formed and how they got on Neil Young's label. And then, of course, touring with Father John Misty, what that was all about. And then we have some real talk about Spotify and social media and how technology is impacting his world, the music world. So I think it's a really fantastic talk. So I, I think you're going to really enjoy it. You can find Elijah on Instagram, Elijah Thompson. Of course, you can find Father John Misty and Everest on Instagram as well. Expect a new record from Everest, I think, pretty soon. He just he said that they just finished recording it. And I guess Father John Misty should be back, hopefully touring, releasing new music next year so. And as for me, you can find me, obviously, on Instagram, at Eddie Cohn. Twitter, send out a message, tell me what you think about the show. Listen to the show, share it with your friends. Head over to iTunes, write a review, or give it a five-star. You can visit my website, IamEddieCohn.com, and get on the newsletter. I've got some new music that should be coming out this year. Still teaching yoga classes online on Zoom. DJing a little bit online as well. So just busy as ever, pursuing creativity any way I possibly can at this point. So huge thanks to Elijah for joining me on the show. I love when I have a band or a musician on the show because it often allows me to play their music on the show. So all the music on today's show is from Everest, from their second record. And yeah, I'm really stoked that Elijah took the time to talk with me. So thanks so much to Elijah. And as always, thanks so much to all of you for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And um, where are you right now, by the way? I am in Annapolis, Maryland, and um, uh, kind of, that's kind of a long story how I got here, but I've kind of been on an odyssey in this pandemic situation. Uh, I was living in Australia last year and uh, came out because I had to, for immigration purposes, come back for like two weeks. And um, and it was obviously perm- permanently back once the, once the lockdown started. So I was staying uh, for a little bit longer than that to do some work and uh, was starting, was gonna work on this, uh, a new Everest record um, starting April 1st. So obviously that didn't happen or uh, I was on my way to Nashville when the lockdown started, so I wound up basically moving into the guest house of David Vanderveld, who is a guitar player in, in uh, Father John Misty, and w- have been staying in Michigan, and they have family coming, so I came here to Annapolis to hang with some friends here. Wow. So were you, yeah. go- were you going to record the Everest record here in L.A.? In Nashville. In Nashville, okay. Cause I was- I- I, it's a long story, but I had left my car in Michigan at Dave's house, and then I was on my way to get or get, went to Michigan to pick up my car and drive it to Nashville, and then 
obviously didn't yeah. go to Nashville. But we we wound up making the Everest record kind of uh, in absentia, you know, um, emailing tracks back and forth yeah. using drums and that kind of thing. And so none of us really ever in the same room. And it really turned out pretty good considering the circumstances, I think. Like, uh, you know, we it, it's not our, I don't, I hesitate to call it our sort of COVID record, you know. Right. Uh, but um, it's more like what we wound up. Ha- it's like we made this record in spite of COVID more than because of it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just listening. I was. I saw you guys in Pasadena at like this outdoor courtyard about probably ten, twelve years ago. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. I mean, you I do that one. Gosh, and. I was really into KCRW at the time, and I actually I, re- I was watching your show again, or at least a couple of the songs. Um, I have this feeling before. I mean, it was like I was really into you guys, and and I was making a record back then, and and so my I'll probably preface this show, but my show is really sort of came from my interest in how technology and social media have really changed the world and specifically creativity and artists. And, and I even think like the rock band when it, like, I feel like the rock band is just slowly on its way out. Um, so these are sort of some of the subjects I want to talk about. Um, but okay. I remember listening to you guys on KCRW, then going to that show and, and just really inspired by the, by the band and the music. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, did the band ever like take a hiatus or obviously you guys are doing a record or just finished a record or, cause it's been a while since you guys have put something out. Yeah. Um, I, th- the easiest way I can explain, I don't think the band ever truly broke up or there was never any official conversation. It just kind of collapsed under the weight of all of our individual financial pressures and basically couldn't make a living doing that band. And as hard as we tried, it just didn't happen. And, and so it was more, uh, just, we stopped out of exhaustion, I'd say. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, uh, it's funny. Cause I feel like people don't realize, and I've had, I just had geographer on the show, the band geographer. And I don't think people realize how much money, and hard work it takes to really become, you know, like James Blake or Father John Misty. I mean, just to, to sort of sustain a little bit of a following and tour. I mean, you, you guys, you must know firsthand. A stupid amount of money. Way, you spend way more than you earn, of course. And, and you know, uh, it's funny because, you know, obviously musicians get kind of knock the knock that we're narcissists. And I always say to people that say that, well, if we were really narcissists, we'd make you come to us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> you know, flying all around the world to, to take music to other people. Cause that's the whole point, you know? And, um, and I'm not saying we're, uh, you know, laying our lives down as a living sacrifice necessarily, but yeah, we go through a lot you know, and spend a lot of money and kind of ruin our lives for yeah. the sake of it. You know? And, and, you know, and also kind of make our lives amazing at the same time because of it. And so it's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit of triumph and tragedy all mixed in. When I feel like backtracking, I want, I'm curious just about Neil Young and how we found out about you guys, but 
I feel like 2010, when you guys were, you know, starting to get some energy and some some people interested in the band, it also was sort of congruently at the same time, the record industry was just sort of like falling apart. And, and Yeah, there's so many variables with any band. I mean, I think... Um, on one hand, you could say Everest had some uh, lucky breaks, like getting signed to Vapor Records, going on the road with, with Neil Young. Uh, but at the same time, Everest should have really been using that time to be um, kind of developing a following in the clubs, you know. And, and, you know, we were opening for Neil Young, which is a total blessing, but, but we were the first of three, and you know, playing to kind of empty arenas and, you know, a majority of the people in the audience are probably not exactly in our age demographic, nor do they really give a shit about who the new band is. They just want to see Neil Young, you know. And so, you know, a lot of time was spent doing these tours and we would kind of go out, you know, abstract from Neil Young and, you know, be struggling to get people into the venues. So, you know, it was a, a little bit of a, you know, I don't know, a pendulum swing with that band. It always was. You know, we we were lucky because of our personal relationships with so many people to to get on some great tours, you know, but sometimes you shouldn't take shortcuts. Sometimes, you know, there's there's kind of there's a difficulty on purpose, you know. It shouldn't just be if you can convince someone to sign you that a label should want to sign you because you've already got something going on. You know. How did Neil Young even find out about you guys, and how did that all break uh, um, through? I think uh, you know primarily through Joel, uh, the, one of the guitar players in the band, who had worked, had just kind of had a relationship with the Neil Young world, and and it's kind of you know various tentacles and how they you know. Essentially through um, Elliot Roberts, may he rest in peace, who passed away last year. Um, uh, Joel uh, interned for for Neil Young's manager, basically, when he was younger, right after college. And and so when they had heard this this project that that Joel was working on, they were intrigued, to, to say the least. Now... I don't think that means anyone who interns for Neil Young's manager gets a record deal. <laughs> right. So they liked the band, obviously, but that's that's how they heard heard the record. Yeah. So what do you think about, like, between 2010, 2015, I mean, did, did you have dreams of making a living as a, being in a rock band and being a bass player? Or, you know, did you start to think, I have to start turning my attention to, like, mixing and engineering because the music industry oh, no. is, like what's what's sort of like what was your angle um well i feel like i've always been recording uh my uncle owned a recording studio when i was a teenager well, he still owns it and um and uh so i started kind of learning there from the engineers that were that were working out of his studio many of whom were very skilled and knowledgeable engineers and uh you know it was kind of like in my 20s, maybe like the only, like, you know, an engineer that my friends knew liked cool records, like, you know, the engineers who were sort of in the generation prior to me, you know, their favorite records were like 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Toto, Toto or something, you know. And, you know, we were all trying to distort our drums and, <laughs> you know, use crazy reverbs and anything we could get our hands on, really, Yeah. at the time. And, and so, yeah, I just kind of started recording my friends' bands, you know, and, and kind of worked that way. I never really felt like I put myself out there as a producer properly, although I think that that's always just been sort of the the opposite end of my life you know i think that um being a bass player a lot of times especially being in lots of different bands and having to you know learn how to get a band into sort of like kind of world beater level you know you learn things along the way and ways to encourage bands to get to that place and i think that stuff crosses over into the studio pretty naturally for me anyway and um and so it's always been both i mean it's, i i think the odd thing was being in a band like everest i i was originally high a hired gun to be in everest they had a different bass player initially and and before they went out on the road with neil young they asked me if i wanted to do it of course when a band asks you to go out on the road with neil young you say yes yeah and so um you know it was a you know, something I sort of had to kind of jump in and and you know figure out what 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 I needed to be for that band. You know, at that time, sometimes just just out of out of sure chance. You know, like that band kind of fizzled out right before I got asked to join Father John Misty, and it just was the right timing for everything to kind of go that way. It doesn't mean that I hated Everest or my time in that band. It was just you know, something that I consider a dream gig playing with Father John Misty. I I mean I, I respect Josh tremendously and and think he's a, a wonderful writer and a and a wonderful artist and and really miss being on the road with that band right now. You know, I, I made a comment about like um, about rock bands, and, and it just feels like they're fizzling away. And, and I saw an expression on your face where you weren't so sure. And, and I don't know. I, I grew up obsessed with the '90s and the Seattle scene, and like Nirvana, obviously Alice in Chains. And I, I don't know. I, I, I of course, there's obviously some rock bands out there, but I, I don't know. It feels as though the interest in a rock band just doesn't really exist as much as it used to. 
I think there's still interest in every genre. I think, you know, things go through trends, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of sort of like societal things that make sort of the perfect kind of nesting ground for rock music, you know, and it ebbs and flows at different times. I mean, you know, it got to a point, especially when gas prices got really high, where, you know, unless you were a trust fund kid, you almost just couldn't afford to be on the road. You know, how can you live, you know, when you when you have to put, you know, $150 into your van's gas tank every, you know, 225 miles, like you're just not going to be able to do it unless you have someone paying for it, you know? Yeah. And so that, if anything, it's those kinds of situations where the venues weren't paying high enough guarantees to be able to get bands to like go out on the road. I mean, I think in the eighties, when gas was, you know, a dollar a gallon, you could make, you know, 250 bucks or 500 bucks and whatever you could make from selling t-shirts and, and, you know, go get a hotel room at, at the holiday inn and, and have dinner, you know, and put yeah. put gas in the tank and, and keep going that way. And, you know, I, that's the, it's, it's the, all the prices went up except the guarantees didn't. <laughs> yeah. And all the labels stopped giving any tour support. Not that they really gave very much to begin with, but, uh, you know, there was just nothing. There was no, there's no money, you know? And so the pressure now is on bands to sort of create this whole, uh, you know, I guess media push or or promotional push have a have kind of a, a gimmick or something like that. I'm not saying that everybody has to, but it's sort of like I don't know. It's a weird time in music where you know uh, there's a lot of style over substance, unfortunately. You know, I'm a big fan of Cold War Kids, and I, I see they have. I think they have a new record coming out, and they're you know posting a lot of stuff on social media. You know, I just, I don't know if the quality, I, I don't think the quality is as good as it used to be. And I know that's a broad statement to make, but I, I point the finger and a lot of things you're talking about, you know, the finances aren't there. I think it's complicated, but I, put the, I point the finger at social media, people's attention spans, and I don't feel like people have the patience to really sit through an okay computer. And then I also feel like there's this strange attitude where it's it's it still frustrates me because i mean i'm working on a record right now but do do you think about this idea of working on a record and the idea that it's you're just going to give it away for free i mean i don't know it's a strange complicated uh, thing yeah i mean i guess i guess that's okay i mean i don't think it's okay i think it's just the way it is i think that at one point a live show was to promote the album and now I think the album is to promote the live show. And and not that I think that's good or anything, but, you know, the thing that you can't replace or just bottle up or trade around on the Internet for free is the live music experience. That's something you have to be there. Even a live record isn't enough or doesn't tell the complete story. It's It's something that lasts in your mind and, you know, I mean, I have people telling me that they saw me play at such and such a show. Well, like you said, you saw us play in Pasadena that night. You have this 
memory of that show or that night or how you felt or it's frozen in your mind and and i have all those too and that's that's what people come back and pay for it they're paying for something they're never going to forget usually and they'll brag about oh 20 years ago i went to so-and-so's show you know and i do that you know yeah saw radiohead at universal amphitheater in 1998 yeah i was at the i was at that show yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was. Was that uh, who was the opener? It was. Um, uh, wow, if you remember, I'll be impressed. Spiritualized. No, that's right. They were the opener. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, Radiohead and Spiritualized, pretty much best ever. But you know what I mean? Like, I remember everything about that night. You know what I mean? And they opened with exit music for a film. That was insane. Yeah, I mean that was. You know, I, again, I, I, it's funny you bring up that, that tour because that record to me, I, I, will, I will never forget the process of me digesting that album. It was one of those things where I remember only responding to Let Down and Karma Police. But then somehow, I think I saw the video for Paranoid Android. It was like this cartoon six and a half minute epic. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... I listened to it, it was this it's this strange journey where you're sort of like looking at the the album, reading the lyrics, and then all of a sudden you see a video and you go from song four to song nine, and then all of a sudden, um, track twelve, I'm suddenly forgetting the name, but he's screaming, slow down, idiot, slow down, the tourist. Yeah. And I'm just I guess I'm not saying that that was a better experience than now, but I just feel as though you're really living with something. And nowadays, sorry, my cat just walked in. And nowadays, it's really just like grab somebody's attention. Maybe somebody's listening while they're watching The Office on Netflix or something. It's just, I don't know. It's just a very complicated way of consumption. Yeah, I mean, it's really the people, ultimately, who decide these things, you know. I, uh, I, I think that, you know, part of maybe why great rock and roll hasn't come around is because the whole society's been satiated and on, you know, the slop they've been serving us, basically. Yeah. And, you know, people have complained my whole life about not having a, you know, enough of a political movement going on in the 80s or 90s or 2000s or 2010s to justify, you know, great political songs or bands that really have a potency on society, you know. And, uh, well, you got a, you got an excuse now. Yeah. You know, there's plenty to write about, you know. It's seeing like the whole world crash before our eyes. If you don't have enough angst in yourself to make a rock and roll record, then maybe rock is dead. Yeah. You know, just going to soft rock our way into oblivion, <laughs> you know. Do you... Sorry. It's nobody's fault but the world, you know. Yeah. I mean, what's your what's your attitude about social media and, and tech? Do you think it's a good thing? I I, I don't know. I, I'm really str I've I've really Anything like this is just you know, it's a double edged sword, you know. It's great and it's terrible. Yeah. You know, we have to figure out the the fine line, you know. It's it's a shame that, you know, something like Spotify makes Netflix money 
and they haven't reinvested in the music industry. You know, they're they're buying up podcasts with musicians' royalties, <laughs> but not taking that money and I don't know, investing into tour support, signing bands, making their own labels, doing what Netflix has done. But they haven't done that. They've just made a website that's that could steal everybody's royalties, and they're just taking it. And I don't know what to say. I mean, whatever, Apple Music, Amazon. None of them made the content. They just licensed it and sold it for nothing. So. Yeah. And who gets, who gets to control that? What musician has a say in that? You know, most of these copyrights were decades old. Some of these people are fucking dead. And they're taking all their money and giving it to Joe Rogan, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I just read the... Um the article with the CEO of Spotify basically saying that, you know, they're creating a, a revenue stream for more artists. Yeah, make even more free content for us if you really want to succeed in today's music industry. It's like, do you know anything about how to do this? No, of course not. Yeah. You just know how to game the system. Good for you. That he gave the example of you know Taylor Swift's record was you know hugely successful, the most streamed record of the week, and and if I mean like Taylor Swift making a living is not challenging at this point. I think about um, and again, this isn't my show is not about. I'm trying to find a solution because I do think if art is better and more artists can make, let's just just to say like fifty thousand dollars a year. That's not even a ton of money. But if artists that are really talented somehow can make $50,000 a year, I think more people will try harder to be better at their craft. And I think it could create a better society. But I just I think those realities and those dreams of of pretending that you could make it as an artist, I just think is so rare now. They're making billions a month. Yeah. Billions. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of money there. There's probably more money in the music industry now than there's ever been. It's just not going back to the artists. So what needs to happen is the government needs to intervene and regulate, rewrite the copyright laws that are arcane compared to the technology that exists today. So, you know, nobody's buying units, you know, everybody's just fine stealing it. So we got to change the laws, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be a doomsday guy, you know, but it's just, it seems like it's basic economics, you know. I mean, I read that touring might not happen until like 2022. Um, what, are, what, are you, what are you thinking? Or have you talked to um, like your I mean, band, I band everybody mates? Everybody's recording. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's recording. You know, recording music is still right there, you know. It's because usually, you know, we're on the road, you know, two thirds of the year and we wait and pick our moments to make records. 
I'm curious, how did the Father John Misty gig happen, and, and what was that like? And I know they're really popular out here in L.A. What's I, you know? Did you guys tour across the country? Are they popular in Europe? I'm I'm just curious how that whole worldwide. Wow, I'd say other than Africa, I got called up one day, and Josh asked me if I wanted to join. I said, "Fuck yeah!" Wow, <laughs> and that was it. I was in the band. Yeah. Talk to me, though, about touring. Just what are some of the challenges? Do you miss the road? Is it, again, one of those love-hate sort of relationships, just like social media, where there's so much to love, but it's just exhausting, and, and, and to keep your sanity is really no, challenging? I, I love the road. I've, you know, different people have different ways that they feel about it, but, but I don't, you know, to be part of an event like that every night is addictive and wonderful. It's great. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of glamour, but I think it's sort of compared to the fact that, you know, you have 10 to 16 people living in a very small mobile home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is not uh, the glamour you might think it is, you know. So, I mean, I, uh, you know, unfortunately, nobody has control over this pandemic, and I don't. I don't think anybody wants to try to force people to smash themselves together during a pandemic, even for the sake of listening to music. And, you know, it's nice that people are making efforts to do online representations of the live music experience. Um, but it's not the same thing, you know. No. And however long we have to wait, I can't wait for those shows that right after the restrictions are lifted because they're going to be some of the most amazing shows of all time. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you hopeful that this is going to find its way out? And um, because you're, again, I, I think, of course, I, I, I love Apple logic and, you know, there's, there's so many things about technology that can be really beneficial and easy but I, I do worry now that we're even more obsessed or more addicted or reliant on technology. Um, I don't know. I, I, has always had an effect on music. I mean, piano is a technology, and it changed music. An electric guitar versus an acoustic guitar. Pedals, amps, they change, and it changes music, keyboards, synthesizers, laptops. You know, a lot of now, a lot of stuff now is like consolidating things or being able to like manipulate things really fast or easily. You know, vintage keyboards sound amazing, but they they don't have presets, and if you turn the wrong knob, you can lose your sound and never get it back. So, like, you know, you there's conveniences uh, in this day and age that are unmatched, of course, and virtual mic pre's and all that kind of stuff that, that, you know, if you're someone who doesn't have access to a really expensive studio, it's a wonderful thing even to have a virtual thing that sounds pretty freaking good. And even with a trained ear, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to, to tell the difference hey, when, you're, when it's being a beat. It's not necessarily an endorsement for technology, digital technology, over analog, I love analog stuff, and it usually sounds better. It's the speed of light versus a flicker. It's a candlelight versus, a, you know, fluorescent light. You know, fluorescent light's more efficient, it's brighter, but it 
It looks gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I will say, you know, a lot of the new technology is incredible and I use it all the time when applicable. But yeah. I like doing things old school too. Yeah. What was it like doing this record with, with Everest as opposed to the last ones? Was it weird to have the drummer completely in a different, uh, you know, area? And um, are you Well, gonna... it was. I mean, compared to everybody being in the same room and jamming together. But I think there was a part that I don't think I really anticipated, but I understand, which is the ability of someone to work on their part by themselves, make it what they want it to be, you know, without a bunch of people standing around them telling them that it's a bad idea or whatever. Yeah. And so you're just getting kind of a finished part, you know, versus there being any discussion. And more often than not, I was pleasantly surprised with all the stuff everybody did independently. Like, uh, I hope I hope I like this so that I don't have to, like, say, you know, let them down easily or whatever. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. You know, yeah. it's mostly really just being excited and, and enjoying being surprised by my friends and their output, you know, and just kind of fun throwing it together that way. And not just not just recording, but writing, you know, coming up with maybe a chord progression and then Russ would come up with a melody and, and lyric or, or vice versa. He'd demo something and we'd surround it with music. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun to just kind of try any way to come out with some new material, yeah. you know, and sometimes, you know, the conditions are the story of the record, you know, like, you know, uh, Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones, you know, was sort of like chaos when they made the record and Keith Richards wound up recording, you know, probably most of the record by himself with the exception of Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger. But like, you know, um, that's what had to be done, you know, to get that record made, you yeah. know, and, and in this instance, there were things that weren't ideal, but still made a record. You know, and it turned out good, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I remember reading an article where Daniel Lenoir, I forgot with whom, one day they went into the studio and it was just everybody picks an instrument and that's all they can, you know, use that day to try and create something. There is something about limitations that I think can be really creative for sure. Well, same with analog technology. I mean, it's not all about the way it sounds, which is the only thing a plug-in can replicate, but there's something about putting the computer screen away and EQing things with your ears and not with your eyes. Um, this time it takes to rewind a tape, you know, that you have a 15-second break to think about what you're going to do. There's all different kinds of things that... that one method over another might be beneficial or or a hindrance and you never really know until you're in the middle of it but the same thing like you know i'm the kind of guy like i just i don't feel like i'm you know super rigid in any of my philosophies or techniques i think it's sort of a case-by-case -case situation like this is what we need to do to make this record it's like you know, if you need to make a record in three days, 
probably doing it on a Studer A80 is not ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, unless it's just going to be garagey and live takes and you go for it and then, and then the mix is the mix, uh, which I'm super into that shit. But that's not always the best solution, you know, for the top quality for whatever it is you're doing. So, you know, it just depends, you know, but I like I like doing records lo-fi. I call it lo-fi hi-fi, but, you know, kind of the lo-fi mentality of just like, go for it. Lay down your take, move on. Let's do this fast. Usually the best stuff is recorded that way, at least in my experience. Walking up brick stairs behind you Saw you disappear around the corner In the sun Yeah, it's funny. I was reading the uh, Jeff Tweedy book. Are you okay? A couple more things. Are you okay with time? Sure, yeah. Cool. I was just reading the Jeff Tweedy book, and uh, I read it a few months ago, and I get a little frustrated because sometimes I'll, you know, I'll sing or hum melodies, but I'm just sort of mumbling stuff, and then I go back, and those mumbles, you know, create words, and, and Jeff writes the same way. And sometimes I've noticed there is something about that, those those moments where I'm creating the melody spontaneously in my head, and I don't have the lyrics yet, except maybe a word here or there, and I'm just sort of mumbling stuff. But there's something about that energy that I can just hear in my voice, where it does yeah. it does sound more like raw or real. Well, you're using your instinct to kind of develop that thing. I was watching this this video recently of uh, Lee Scalar, famous bass player. Doing something about the Susudio baseline uh, by <laughs> Phil Collins, and and he was talking about that the term Susudio was just a made up gibberish word that that Phil Collins had used, you know, Susudio, and that it just doesn't mean anything. And then he said, I think that he was probably going to change it, you know, to something not that isn't Susudio, but like it was the best sounding phrase, and you know. There's a lot of songs like that that are just, you know, woolly bully, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> just weird phrases or, you you know, they mean something and you don't even know what it means anymore. But, like, you know, just sometimes words just sound good when you sing them, you know? Yeah. Obladi, oblada. Well, and Jeff, Jeff Buckley, I always kind of thought was, I really had no idea what he was singing about, but there was always just... They always, I mean, granted it was Jeff Buckley, but still, it's the words that he sung always sounded amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, give the guy a break, he only had one record. Right, right. <laughs> he was still learning how to write, you know. He didn't even write all the songs on that first record. I think it was only like five or six of yeah. those gems he wrote. But, uh, 
But no, I know. I mean, that's that's kind of part of what's awesome. I mean, a great singer can make anything sound good, even if it's just scatting, you know. Yeah. And 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 ultimately, not every song needs to be some, you know, beat poem to to music. You know, uh, it's great if you can express yourself that way. But uh, I think it's you know, there's a lot about poetry is saying a saying a lot with very little and and sometimes that might even be with no words you know just a ooh part yeah maybe that's the right thing for that moment in the song it just i think we get too too stuck on form and not not enough of just sensing what sounds good does does the song make you feel good if Mm. it does it's probably a good song yeah (laughs) you know or, you know, it'll be a great song, you know, according to the measure of how good it makes people feel. And usually when you ask people, you know, what they like about a song, that's what they say. I love the way it makes me feel. Very simple. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I say, you know. I like the beat. I like the changes. I like the melody. But there's no form that I love. Like, I, I like it all, you know. You can form it up any way you want it. Last couple of things and I'll let you go. I I want to just backtrack a little bit. It's interesting. I started out as a piano player and then a drummer and a guitar player. And I I never could hear or understood the bass for years. It wasn't until like my late 20s, early 30s where I, I really felt like I heard it in a song and and really understood the value of the bass. Now I'm like all about it and and it really it really like moves the song and gives it just this feel that without it suddenly the song just just feels so flat i'm just i'm curious was that just backtracking you know what was how did you become so interested in music and did you initially go to the bass or just you know what made you realize that music just was this really powerful force for your life and also the bass um, well, my dad was a musician, and he was a bass player, and not just a bass player, but a very enigmatic, unique player, and did kind of his own thing, which I really appreciate now, you know, I think at the time, you know, when your dad plays bass, and then you play bass, mm-hmm. you're trying to avoid any comparisons to your father. <laughs> um, but but I love that he was unique, and he did his own thing, and, and that has inspired me in my, the later years of my career to be comfortable being weird and doing my own thing and, and, and having a style, you know, and kind of knowing yourself and what, what you should be all about. I think it's more important than, you know, being able to copy people, you know, it's being able to do something nobody can copy. <laughs> right. I'm like, you know, Jimi Hendrix is great as a guitar player, as I've heard, try to play his stuff. Nobody sounds like him, you know, it's just him. And that's the beautiful thing about music is that signature thing, you know. And and so I, I guess in my later years, I just am more about trying to do things um, that are uh, non-cliche, I guess. Trying, yeah. Just trying to even challenge myself to not do what I would normally always do the first time I'd just try to do something. 
And, um, and that is, you know, I'm finding tons of newness in an instrument that I've been obsessed with for 30 years. But I think the bass is, you know, the least popular. <laughs> it's sort of like the point guard on a basketball team. It's like you got to do all the hard work and you have to know all the plays and stuff like that. And, and you don't get necessarily to be the finisher. But like the people that play basketball know that the point guard or being some, having somebody on the team that's a playmaker is important. So I kind of look at the bass kind of like that, where it's like, not everybody notices what you're doing all the time, but the other musicians in the band notice. And and ultimately, you know, it's not about me getting a lot of accolades at the end of the show. It's about the band sounding dope. Yeah. And if I get accolades, that's sweet. I don't even really feel comfortable when people give me those anyway. So, like, for me, it's about, you know, just the band feeling amazing, you know, and if if I can contribute to that and make them feel like their jobs are easier, then I've succeeded, you know. I want to groove. I want to lose myself. I don't want to think it, think about it too much. Sometimes I lose myself too much. <laughs> Sometimes I don't lose myself enough, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I usually like what I call just transcending my reality. I like to get outside of myself, close my eyes, not think about that much about what's going on other than the music. Well, I guess my last point, I'll let you go. I, I'm not trying to be um, dystopian here, but, you know, your example, and we touched on it here, of losing yourself, the time I saw you guys in Pasadena, the show, the show at the uh, Universal or Pacific Amphitheater, seeing Radiohead. I'm not saying that the phone and the iPad and all these tech devices, I mean, I, I get that it's a love-hate relationship. I get that there's the good and the bad. But I really am trying to strive for a going below the surface and creating some more depth and feeling and really feeling the experience and feeling a record and feeling a song and anything I can do or, or you can do that, like, can you offer a specific moment or just another story where you really are transcending creativity that's going so beyond the surface that you can't even maybe even necessarily explain it? I don't know. I just feel like our world is all just short-sighted now. Yeah, I mean... I honestly feel like that's everyone's goal with music is to transcend their reality. It's the audience's goal when they come there, they put up with a lot of shit, hmm. weird people smashing against them. It's hot. It's, it's uncomfortable. They're standing for hours on end sometimes, but for a payoff, you know, for this thing where sometimes thousands of people can all lose themselves simultaneously and under the same, reason you know that you want to you know kind of get lost in music you know and the same th probably the same essential thing that makes people want to get drunk <laughs> you know or or anything that that can help you to transcend your own reality and and i and i feel like you know success with music is is how how well you transcended or didn't because the enemy to that creativity is 
you know, thinking about it too much, as if you can somehow conceive of something, some perfect piece of art. It has to come from the ether and really descend on you. And the more you're thinking about it, the less open you are to sensing things coming out of the ether. And I know that sounds super mystical, but that's the way I look at it. Like, every time I've been trying to make somebody think I was cool, I think I fail at it. Yeah. And every time I'm lost in the music, I feel like I inadvertently inspire people, you know. But it's like I'm not going to inspire people by merely choosing to do it, you know, like or even inspire myself or the, the musicians around me. You know, I have to be doing it. And so, and there's so many things that can get in the way of our mind uh, from being able to reach that that place of effortless mastery, you know, where I can't be better than I am right now at this moment. I, I could I could work on this on the downtime or whatever, but like just releasing it all and just letting it flow out of you. And and I think I think any performance art or even athletics is something to do with that. Like at the really highest levels it's mental. You know, and and keeping your ego in check and figuring out a way to do that every night. Yeah. You know? So that's the challenge I love. That's why I love live music. I like recorded music too. Uh, the problem is there's no audience, you know. And so, you know, I have to, in the studio, you know, help remind everybody that there will be an audience one day. Right. <laughs> so play for the the audience that will eventually be listening to this music. And I think that's a good way to approach it. That the people are listening in the future. Do you like it when a band, I was just thinking, do you like it when a band or an artist, when they play live, it pretty much sounds just like the record? Or do you like it when they, you know, improvise or there's differences or, or it just depends? Depends on the band. I mean, um, Sometimes there's a challenge to try to recreate the same experience every night, but I think uh, more often than not, uh, you should kind of give yourself a little room to kind of explore things just so it doesn't become robotic and boring. Uh, but sometimes people count on hmm. certain aspects of it being the same. Yeah. And if you do something too out of character, it can throw somebody off to where they're like, what's he doing? You know, and that's not going to help, you know, anybody. Uh, so I think a lot of times the moments that I'll step out, I've almost set up kind of like a standard where in this moment I might do something weird, <laughs> but I'll bring it right back to, to what's normal. And so the people that play with me, I think, get used to that. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I, I try not to overdo it. You know, I don't know whether I succeed or not, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to be pretty conscious of, of picking those moments so that it doesn't disrupt everyone's flow or step all over somebody else. What's next for you? I mean, touring on hold, Everest, uh, Everest record. records. Uh, I, I think I probably can't tell you who I'm about to produce, but I'll maybe catch up with you later and we'll say, yeah, that was who it was. Yeah. Um, but I, I have a couple records uh, to do uh, throughout the rest of the year. I think three things that are kind of stacked up, which is kind of weird. <laughs> and, 
and amazing at the same time to have work in the, during a pandemic year. Uh, Father John Misty was was on hiatus anyway, um, so we were taking 2020 off long before there was anything like a pandemic going on. Yeah. So we just got lucky in that sense, you know. So I hope that we can get back to it as soon as possible. I'm bored. Yeah. I love recording, but I need I need to feel the audience, you know. Otherwise, it just feels too much like a vacuum. <laughs> yeah, it really does. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eli... Just NBA players playing in front of no audience. <laughs> that yeah. You know, yeah. Anyway. It, no, it's just you are reminding me though. There's the value of um, live shows, and I there was there were about four or five years, maybe eight years ago, where I was going to like forty shows a year, and I saw Seagull Ross at the Hollywood Cemetery, and then I, I saw him in Cleveland, um, just because I'm from Cleveland, and I remember literally the reason why I went to the show in Cleveland was because Hollywood Forever. I was just really far away, but in Cleveland, like nobody knew about him, and there was maybe. 800, yeah. pe- 800 people were there, and I was literally front row. It was probably the greatest concert I've ever been to. It was just life-changing, and um, we, we need those experiences. We do, and and it's if you're really into music, it's sometimes how you know what year you're in. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we need those experiences, and let's be honest, there's not that many times we as a group of humans get together and and for one reason yeah <laughs> unless it's you know this kind of protesting and anarchy which is wonderful to see and i you know and in certain ways i can't believe it took everyone this long to wake up from their slumber but we also need to get together and sing songs together and dance together and feel one another's energy and and it's not any one band, it's all music. All these festivals where there's towns that make their, you know, so much of their money throughout the year because of like Glastonbury, you know. Mm-hmm. Think of all those surrounding communities where nobody's renting those hotels and nobody's coming in. And there's hundreds of festivals that all do that for the their host towns and all the people that don't have that work or those jobs. It's sad. And uh, and we need to get back to it, but not not at the risk of the public health, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, fortunately, obviously, we don't want to do that. So, right. um, but um, it'll come back. I believe that. And if it doesn't, the world's not worth living in. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. And yeah. Well, Eli, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, just talking about some stuff that I think is really important and I, I appreciate yeah, it. I appreciate fun. it. Yeah, man. Cool. Well, thanks so much, man. Yeah, man. Have a appreciate good day. Appreciate you. Yeah, have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. See ya.